when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing another big week in Brexit news, plus the quiet revival of the Liberal Democrats. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, our political editor, chief political commentator Philip Stevens, political correspondent Henry Mance, and political commentator Miranda Green. So let's kick off with Brexit for a change. It's been another news-packed week with lots of small developments but little actual progress on the government's position. On Tuesday, the House of Commons began debating the slender Article 50 bill and on Wednesday, 498 MPs backed the bill. And on Thursday, the infamous Brexit white paper outlining the government's strategy was published which contains, amongst typos and errors, little new detail. So George Parker, it's sort of been an odd week in Brexit news. We're trundling towards the point at which Article 50 will be triggered. But in terms of the House of Commons, there wasn't any major shift there in opinion from the vote in December. And the white paper, which we'll come on to in a moment, didn't really tell us anything new. Yes, that didn't set up the discussion very, very exciting <laughs> fashion. So. But I think I would disagree, actually, just to sort of inject a notion of enthusiasm. I think the vote on Wednesday was actually an historic moment in the House of Commons. I think the fact that a House of Commons where at least two thirds, maybe three quarters of MPs think that Brexit is the wrong thing to do. The fact that nearly 500 of them walked through the division lobbies to vote to start the process, I think, was a significant moment. And I found the debate quite emotional and in a way almost moving. Ken Clark made a brilliant really speech. Really fantastic a speech. Very, very funny, but also very powerful speech about um, he was going to vote with his conscience and he was going to vote against Brexit. But I thought Sir Keir Starmer, Labour spokesman on Brexit, gave a very interesting speech as well, where he basically stood up and said, this is a short bill, a very simple bill, but a very difficult bill for Labour. And all the Conservative MPs laughed immediately. But then as he developed his argument, you realised it was almost like a sort of eulogy to the Labour Party. They listened in silence. You could tell the gravity of the moment for the Labour Party caught on this, the biggest political issue of the moment without a clear message at all and split down the middle. When we had that non-binding vote at the end of last year, that gave us this broad outline that the House was going to back Brexit. But still, as you said, 498 MPs, a lot of them don't believe in Brexit. Mm. A lot of them don't believe in leaving the single market. And even if you'd said that two years ago, you would have thought it would have been completely bonkers. Well, exactly. Seeing Labour MPs walking through the division lobbies with people like Bill Cash and John Redwood, and even those two weren't advocating leaving the European Union three or four years ago. It's a remarkable thing to witness. And uh, you could say it highlights the way that uh, representative democracy has been subverted by this desire by politicians in recent years to hold referendums on issues which maybe they shouldn't be holding referendums on. Nevertheless, it's happened and it's going to go through Parliament. And by March the 7th or thereabouts, it will be on the statute book. Now, Philip Stevens, I have a guess to what your answer this is going to be, but do you think those 498 MPs, the ones inside of that grouping who didn't believe in Brexit, should they have voted with their conscience? I think absolutely. I think the strength of Ken Clark's speech was that here was the person making the strongest case for parliamentary sovereignty. And the great irony of this is, as George has said, what the referendum did was subvert 
the very sovereignty that the Brexiters claim to be upholding. Now, if that's not a contradiction, I don't know what is. I thought Clark's speech is one of those ones that's going to be remembered. And when the historians look back on this vote, and in my view, it was a disastrous vote, he'll be the sort of Churchillian figure holding out against the tide, as it were. The other interesting speech I thought in the debate, though, came from another Conservative, from George Osborne, because what Osborne told us, and I think what's been missed in a lot of the coverage this week, is that the white paper tells us a great deal about Britain's negotiating position. And in essence, what it says is that Mrs May has elevated her political commitments and priorities on immigration and the ECJ over the economic imperatives in the negotiations. So getting out of the ECJ, restoring national control over immigration, takes priority over our prosperity, to put it bluntly. I think that's a very interesting... It was implicit before, but now we see it there in black and white explicit. Yes, I think George Osborne was saying he totally respected Theresa May's decision to prioritise immigration over the economy, but plainly George Osborne didn't respect that decision. He profoundly disagrees with it. We know that very well. One thing I would say about the immigration thing, if you read the white paper, is I wonder whether Theresa May is giving herself slightly more room for manoeuvre than many people think. We assume she's going to take a very tough line on immigration and impose very severe restrictions on EU citizens coming here to work. But if you read the white paper, it's not about cutting numbers, it's about taking control over the process. And This is maybe a bit of a wild card guess because it goes against everything we know about Theresa May. But one of the rooms for manoeuvre she has in the negotiation is that she could come up with a very generous work permit system for EU migrants. She could, for example, offer a work permit to every EU citizen who has a job offer. No welfare, maybe, but run it like that. That would make it quite close to free movement. And the closer you get to free movement, the closer, theoretically, you can get to the single market. So just to stand back for a moment on the white paper, can you just explain the significance of this, George? So essentially, Mrs May had this speech a couple of weeks ago where she outlined her 12 negotiating objectives backed by four generic principles. They've essentially been put into parliamentary language with a bit more detail on them, but why has there been so much interest in this? And aside from that, are there any other interesting bits in it? Well, I think the reason why it assumed significance was that it was seen as totemic of Parliament being able to scrutinise her negotiating position. It's something that David Davis had previously suggested the government would do and then withdrew that offer. Politically, it was significant only because Theresa May saw it as a way of buying off a fairly modest conservative rebellion and to show that she was prepared to give Parliament oversight of the process. But as you said in your introduction, it's a 77-page document which basically expands what I think was a 12-page speech at Lancaster House with a few annexes, a few charts and illustrations, some of them not entirely accurate. But there's some detail in there if you want to look at it. I mentioned the immigration thing. One of the other things on the immigration section, incidentally, was she said she wanted to create an immigration system that worked for all parts of the country, which sounds to me like a bit of a hint towards the possibility you could have slightly more generous immigration work permit systems in places like London and Scotland where people want more immigrants. On the immigration question, I think George is right that we probably won't, when we leave, end up with a really restrictive immigration policy because to do so would be to strangle the economy. We need the migrants. I don't really agree that this gives us much of a sort of negotiating hand in the Brexit negotiations. I think conversations that I've had, people are very clear, either you sign up to the acquis, the set of rules that the EU has, and you sign up completely, 
or you sign off from those. You can't be half in and half out. And I think one of the things that the negotiations will show, and George Osborne's made this point, is that this idea of a bespoke deal with half opt-outs here and half opt-ins there really isn't going to work. I think that's going to be stripped away. And we're talking about a straightforward trade deal, as any third country would have between the UK and Brussels, if the talks actually achieve anything. And I think there are a lot of people saying it's only 50-50 that the talks will actually come to a conclusion. This is the very interesting point, Philip, because the EU and Britain come from quite different places with these talks that we know that the British government wants to go gung-ho on trade and that New Deal and ideally would like to get that done within the two years, whereas the EU is much more concerned about how it separates and more crucially that big bill for the divorce that they want to recoup as much as possible. So I can completely see that happening. But going back to your point about what Mrs May wants, I think she made it quite clear in her speech now that she is not looking to stay in the single market or keep some elements. The only question, I suppose, is the customs union, whether there can be a customs agreement as part of a free trade deal that will stop the British economy from having significant issues. Well, I don't think there can, because once you, as the white paper says... Once you say we're not going to be bound by the common external tariff, you can't really be in a customs union. Otherwise, the UK would be the route into Europe for the rest of the world, a cheap route in. So I think on those details, I think they'll drop away. I think the big questions will be one, as you say, the cash question, whether it's 20 billion euros or 60 billion our liabilities. There's going to be a big argument over the amount. But the other argument is going to be about does our payment of our dues, as it were, as we leave, is that linked inextricably to the future deal? If you talk to someone in France, they say, no, you pay your dues, then we talk about a deal. The British approach is to say, no, no, we're not going to pay our dues until we're sure we're going to get the right deal. That's going to cause a lot of anger. Yes, that's the sequencing that people are vexed about. Nick Clegg talks a lot about this at the moment. I think those are the three big things in the negotiation, at least in the first phase, is the bill, the sequencing that Philip's just been describing, and then whether linked to that there can be an agreement on a transitional period to get implementation to, or implementation to get you from A to B. And all those three things, I think, in the end, are going to be linked. We were just talking to Alex Barker, our estimable colleague in Brussels today and at the FT who came to brief journalists on how he saw things. And he was saying he thought things would come to a head in December this year by Christmas. And that would be the point at which we'd know whether a deal was going to be possible or not. And it was possible at that point that Britain could walk away because we'd need time to make alternative arrangements and we'd want to give ourselves plenty of time to do that for the EU to adapt. So things could come to a head much sooner than people think, according to Alex anyway. Now, obviously, Mrs May has gone off to Malta, George. You're not in those sunnier climates at the moment, thankfully, for a summit. And this is the way things are going to happen. Now, she was there for the morning, stayed for lunch and has gone in the afternoon as the EU 27, not the 28, now discuss other matters that will concern their future. And Mrs May went with quite a clear message here to say, I've just come back from Washington where I saw my new best buddy, Donald Trump, and he's going to 
back NATO if you pay your way and try to sort of make yourself a bridge between Trump and a Europe. But Europe didn't seem very interested. We saw Francois Hollande, the French president, has some very choice words about the new president. I'm sure behind closed doors, the other leaders do too. And it did make me wonder, is this strategy going to work? That if you're going to be Mr. Trump's embassy to Europe, Europe might just put you in the same category as him and not really want to speak to you. Well, I think it's a very dangerous diplomatic path that Theresa May is trying to tread here. I think she was right to go to Washington. I think she was right to go there as a candid friend. I don't think the state visit was a very good idea. And I don't think it was a very good idea to hold Donald Trump's hand. But nevertheless, I thought it was right for her to go. But as you alluded to there, there is a danger here for Britain that the relationship with the US, which obviously has become more important as we downgrade our EU relationship, starts then to look like an Anglo-Saxon plot to destabilise the EU and starts to contaminate Brexit. And you only have to look at some of the things that Donald Trump's been saying about Angela Merkel, putting her in the same bracket as Vladimir Putin, accusing Germany of being a currency manipulator, threatening to rip up the world trade system that Germany depends on. You can see that no matter what Theresa May says to people like Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande, they're going to look look at this relationship somewhat askance, I think. I think Theresa May has missed two things. One, I think she got too close to Trump. Too soon. Too soon. But I think George is right. You know, a British prime minister should always go and see a new US president. But it could have been rather low key. It didn't have to include, as George said, an invitation for the state visit. Other presidents have come after a year or two years, I think, is the more normal. That's about the average. That's about the average. So that was foolish. And it blew up as soon as Mr. Trump announced the ban on immigrants. The second thing is that if you're leaving a club, as we are in Europe, lecturing the members of that club on what they should do as you're about to walk out the door is probably not the most intelligent way of getting your argument across. There's a strong case to be made for European nations to spend more on defence. I don't think it's a case best made by the prime minister of a country that said, actually, we're off. And finally, George, just looking forward now with the white paper and the Article 50 bills, the bill's now gone off to the committee stage where MPs will try and amend it and see if they can tack some bits on it, then comes back to the Commons for another vote, then off to the Lords. And the 7th of March is what we're hearing by the time Mrs May wants it to all be done and dusted. And then the white paper debate will continue. Yes, so they want to get done by the 7th of March. That opens up the tantalising prospect of Theresa May going to Brussels for a summit on the 9th and 10th of March to hand in the letter of notification. I don't think at this stage that's the plan. I think they would rather do this in a slightly more low-key fashion rather than do it up in lights at a European summit. But yeah, the bill will go through. The House of Lords doesn't want to fight with the British people on this. And then she will be armed with a big Commons mandate to start the ball rolling. Now, remember the Liberal Democrats? They were the future ones, but are they experiencing a rebound? After almost being wiped out at the 2015 general election, they've regrouped themselves around Brexit, being the party of the so-called 48%. Quietly and sometimes below the radar, the party's tickerish leader, Tim Farron, is rebuilding and gaining support. In several council by-elections, they've even taken some seats from Labour. So, is the party staging a comeback? Henry Mance, you interviewed Mr Farron this week and he was typically optimistic about the party's chances of coming back. Do you think they can actually do that and by the next election become a proper electoral force once more? Yeah, I think there's a good opportunity for them as the most pro-European UK party. There's 48% of voters out there who thought it was a good idea to remain. Now, some of those have now switched to being Brexit backers. Some of those would never desert their usual party. But the Liberal Democrats do have an opportunity. And the thing to get into people's heads, obviously, is that 
they currently have nine seats after winning the Richmond Park by-election against Zach Goldsmith. They can go a lot higher without necessarily troubling the government. And on this local level, the Liberal Democrats' support in the past was always built by securing councils, getting seats, becoming the opposition, and then focusing on a couple of selected MP seats. That's how they built up through the 90s and the noughties. And there's been quite a few council elections. There was one in Sunderland, which was quite a curious case of a Labour MP who was booted out for not turning up to council sessions. And the Liberal Democrats went from nothing to about 48% in one election and won it. And there's lots of instances of those across the country. So if they can do that, then that might help them at the next election, particularly in university towns in those metropolitan areas. Yeah, they say they've had 27 gains net since May and they're winning in seats that actually voted leave during the referendum. And I think when I went down to Richmond Park during the by-election, I mean, it looked like a very tough ask for them to get rid of Zach Goldsmith. But one of the things that they had in their favour was it was a remain seat, sure. But they also do an incredible job when they're firing of presenting themselves as the advocates of local needs. So if you're worried about social care, if you're worried about the NHS, the Liberal Democrats can throw resources and just appear like your saviour, whatever your gripe with the government. Miranda Green, you've followed and been involved in many of the ups and downs of the Liberal Democrats over the years. Do you think that there is actually some substance to this or is this all just a PR operation from Mr Farron to mask the fact that the country's going towards Brexit and the Liberal Democrats aren't on that train? I think that the Brexit vote is a huge opportunity for the Lib Dems, who, after all, had a near-death experience in the 2015 general election to rebuild. And, of course, they don't have the same sort of problems, or certainly not on the same scale as the Labour Party. So... Whereas I was very sceptical of people in the Lib Dems who thought the election of Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader was a great opportunity for the Lib Dems, this idea that politics is a sort of spectrum where there's a very pure laws of physics effect. If one bunch shift too far to the left, then another bunch will just expand to fill the vacuum. I don't think it quite works like that for voters. However... The two factors of the Jeremy Corbyn leadership plus the Labour Party being completely split on what to do about Brexit, which was visibly shown this week over the vote on Article 50, does now give the Lib Dems a big opportunity. And I think that Farron is rightly quite optimistic about making a big step towards proper recovery on the back of the Brexit vote. There are a lot of voters who are currently homeless because of the Labour Party's shift to the left. And if they can play their cards right, they might tempt some of those disenfranchised Labour people on side and also moderate pro-European Tories. However, as Henry quite rightly said, you do have to see this in perspective. You know, this is recovery from a total electoral disaster in the 2015 election. And also during the coalition years, there was really bad attrition of that local government base every time there were big council elections. As you rightly said, Seb, that has always been the way back for the Lib Dems to build from the local base. Having said that, some of these swings to the Lib Dems in the council by-elections are extraordinary in terms of both their scale and also they're winning in both leave areas and remain areas. You rightly picked out Sunderland. So it's going to be interesting to watch what happens to the Lib Dem vote in the two by-elections we've got later this month because although they won't win in either Stoke or Copeland, if the Labour Party experiences similar difficulties as we saw in the by-election just before Christmas and its vote is in trouble, then you will be seeing a continuation of this story of Lib Dem recovery. We've heard reports this week that 7,000 Labour members have deserted the party and Liberal Democrats have had another big boost in their membership numbers as a result of Jeremy Corbyn's position to have a three-line whip in favour of the government's Article 50 bill. But I suppose the question is, 
how the Liberal Democrats, because they have such a limited parliamentary representation, well, they're okay in the House of Lords, they've got a lot of peers that have been the Commons, it's just nine MPs. And even those nine MPs are split, they didn't all universally vote down the government's legislation. And in fact, during one of the late night readings, there was not a single Liberal Democrat MP there. So some have questioned, you know, you can talk this good game, but in Parliament, what are you actually going to do to hold the government to account and speak up for the 48%? Well, someone like, for example, Norman Lamb, who represents a Norfolk rural seat, is a classic case of that because his constituency is very strongly Brexit. And yet he's a committed Europhile, so he in fact abstained on the vote. And that shows you that if the Lib Dems still had the number of seats they had before the 2015 election, you definitely would have seen more of a split in this sort of vote over Europe. It's a tricky one for them. However, if you're starting off from a position in the polls of around 7 to 8% and you've got a pool of 48% of people who voted to remain in the EU to play with, that's quite promising territory. And it's all a question of degree. But I think you're quite right to point that out. I also would raise another question question about the Lib Dem fight back, which is what's it for? In the short term, there's clearly a battle to be had in parliamentary terms and also in campaigning in the country about representing the views of those who voted to remain in the EU and trying to soften Brexit as much as possible by sort of a tactical battle. But in terms of broader politics, what are you in it for? And during the coalition years, the kind of idea of the purpose of the Lib Dems as a third Liberal Party became very, very diluted into this idea that it would sort of blunt the edges of one of the bigger parties in government. And really, they need to do a much bigger job of convincing the public that there is a true purpose to the Lib Dems beyond this tactical one of fighting Brexit, fighting hard Brexit, I should say. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the Lib Dems are not in a position to say, take a mayoralty in Manchester or take one in London, which might be one thing a third party could aspire to in in another country. I think it is a really interesting ideological question. It's not just about splitting the difference anymore. So left, right, with a voice of moderation. I think that strategy failed in 2015. You know, Nick Clegg said, we'll make either party more reasonable. And people said, well, why would I vote for you if you're then just going to choose which party is in power? I don't think that appeal worked. It's much better for them to find issues on which they're distinctive. So Europe is now one, drug legalisation. Heathrow is indeed another. They're the party that have ruled out southeast airport expansion. There are issues on which the Lib Dems do speak differently to the other parties. I mean, Donald yeah. Trump is a, an instance where they speak with authority because they were the party that were against the Iraq war and that said, if you get too close to a US president, you get trampled on. And Labour doesn't have credibility on that issue because of Iraq. And the Tories have decided to get very close to Donald Trump. I think Henry's right. There was one commentator in the run-up to the 2015 election who had a wonderful a dismissive phrase for this, which is that the Lib Dems is a bit like putting rinse aid in the dishwasher. You, you know you're supposed to and it makes the results a bit better, but you don't quite know what it does. And that was a disastrous strategy for them. I think there's something a bit more than this tactical issues that they need to do, though, which is actually to look at the liberal tradition, to look at the thinking that a leader like Joe Grimmond did in the 1960s to reinvent liberalism for the modern age and actually sell something a bit more idealistic about the little guy, about community as well as individualism. And then they will be selling something substantive rather than just tactical positions. And I suppose that brings you to my final point, which is that 
they can obviously get a lot of electoral success out of Brexit because there's a lot of people who feel they're caught in between. You know, if you don't want to leave the EU, if you feel unhappy, then you're going to go to the Liberal Democrats. But we know roughly in about two years, the first stage of the Brexit process will be over. If the Liberal Democrats focus all their resources on Brexit, we get to March 2019, the run-up to a general election. What is the party going to stand on then? Is it going to be taking us back into the EU or would it be rejoining the single market? Or are they going to move on from the EU something entirely different. No, absolutely. You're quite right. And they have to have a broad range of values, which they've also managed to kind of re-identify in voters' minds. That's much more difficult to do than fastening on this current Brexit crisis as a vehicle. And finally, Henry, what did you make of Tim Fowler when you had a chat with him this week? Because to a lot of ordinary people, he'll have just appeared on their consciousness in a way. Because after Nick Clegg stepped down following the general election defeat, Tim Fowler became leader and really struggled to make headway because he was never picked on in PMQs because the party only had eight, now nine MPs. And it didn't really know what they stood for. But now he seems to be very much everywhere as the voice of the 48%. You know, how does he compare in your mind to the other party leaders, for example? I think Tim Farron, most people in Westminster would feel, is okay. Is not a sparkling leader, doesn't have the charm of Charles Kennedy or or maybe the authority that Nick Clegg had and the energy that Nick Clegg had in around 2010 when he was at his most Clegmania. Clegmania, um, we all remember it well. But I think you could say he's gaining momentum, he gains a bit of credibility. His story is interesting on a constituency level. He took a seat which was not a Liberal Democrat safe seat and made it into one of the safer seats in the country by going round working very hard. Now, that means that you may actually have sacrificed something in terms of policy work in Westminster. He didn't go into the coalition government. So he doesn't come with a credibility on a particular issue like Nick Clegg comes with credibility on Europe, having worked in it. But he is someone who knows how to campaign, knows how to get a message across. And I think that Lib Dems on Europe, they have a policy which is, I think, plausible, I mean, which is that there should be a referendum on the terms of the Brexit deal because people wanted to get different things out of this Leave vote. And I don't think the government's going to accept it and the government's not really in, in compromising mood, but they managed to devise a policy and Tim Farron is going out and selling it. I think that Tim Farron's actually making the right decisions and saying the right things and that the problem is one of those things in politics that you can't change, which is who you are. You know, And so a lot of kind of moderate former New Labour voters and indeed soft Tories he's just not that kind of person. One of those things you can't change. But I think it's a bit unjust because also if you look at what he's said about the Brexit vote itself and about the motivation of voters, he has an interesting contribution to make because he himself is actually from Preston in Lancashire and most of the people he grew up with voted leave and he understands it. So he understands it at a deep level whilst thinking it needs to be fought against and therefore he does deserve possibly as much of the hearing that he is now getting. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.